This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Nam. And I'm Jamal Dejani. Uh, Jamal, we want to welcome our viewers and our listeners from all over the uh, world, from the Bay Area to the Middle East and beyond. This is another episode of Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. We continue to be sheltering in place and doing the show remotely because, as we've been talking about for months and months, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic continues to worsen. Uh, Here in California, where you and I are broadcasting the show from, we are in the middle of a pretty huge spike, and we'll be talking about that a little bit later. But California, in terms of number of positive cases and deaths, is uh, leading the country in the number of new cases. In fact, we took over from New York as the leader in the number of positive cases. We also are the largest state uh, in the country in terms of sheer numbers. But make no mistake, Jamal, the, the pandemic is is continuing to get worse. We have a great show today. We're going to be talking about Donald Trump's mental status. We're going to be talking about the Democrats and uh, their platform. There's a lot to talk about, Jamal. There's a lot going on in the midst of the pandemic. Then also we also have a fun part where uh, we have a guest, uh, which we've had before, Blanche Shaheen. Right. Uh, she's, she has a cook show on YouTube, and she's going to teach you, just and me, and everyone else, how to prepare fast, healthy, Middle Eastern meals in this quarantine. Because, as you that. know, most people that. are stuck at home now. You can't go out to restaurants like we used to. And so if you want to prepare something quick, she will show us uh, and give us some tips. And of course, she has a book, which also will, she'll share uh, the information about the, this book in the show. But uh, first, uh, a couple of things we're going to focus on, Jess, is there is now a draft of the 2020 right. Democratic Party platform. Okay, so this uh, now has been circulating. And uh, you and I are going to only focus on the foreign policy. It's a long draft. I don't know. I I didn't go through all the pages. I kind of skimmed through most of them, but I just focus on the foreign policy changes, you know, ranging from uh, diplomacy with Iran to Palestine, which you will be very disappointed about as far as Palestine. So we'll we'll go with uh, some of uh, the changes, uh, Jess, and um, maybe we'll focus on the top five. Uh, also, the platform itself like uh, has this more of a uh, focus on human rights, obviously, because what's happening in the United States and also less on uh, or a dovish tone towards Iran and uh, and less on wars. But the disappointing part, which we'll come to it later on, guess what? Just a simple word they miss and they don't, they don't talk about when they talk about Palestine. The word is occupation. They don't talk about occupation and um, they really drop the ball yet again on Palestine. And I have some, we'll get to it later. I know, Jamal, I have some ideas about why it is what it is. But I wasn't disappointed. It's exactly what I expected from the Democrats. So, But we'll get to that in a minute. But some of the other changes in terms of foreign policy, you know, there 
It doesn't take much, Jamal, to have a stark contrast with the Trump administration's foreign policy. The Trump administration doesn't really have a foreign policy per se. Their approach to foreign policy is what I would call slash and burn. Mm -hmm. So if you disagree with the Trump administration on anything, they're going to try to undermine your economy. They're, it's basically, a, as I said, a slash and burn we don't care that you've been an ally for 50 or 60 or 70 years since the end of World War II. We don't care that uh, you have been supportive of the United States economic policies for decades. If you don't agree with me personally as Donald Trump, we are going to hurt you in some dramatic way. So that's, that's the Trump foreign doctrine. It's not going to be that difficult, Jamal, to draw a contrast and to sound more reasonable, is it? Yeah, you're absolutely right. So let's go through, uh, through some of these uh, so-called uh, so or policy changes. So, for example, on Iran, the draft explicitly says that the Democrats are not seeking regime change in Iran. They repeat this time and time again. And it also uh, stresses the need uh, to go back to negotiations and to go back to the Iran deal, uh, which saw... Uh, the uh, back, you know, to the uh, so the Tehran scaled back its uh, nuclear program in exchange for lifting sanctions against its economy. And as right. you know, Trump basically threw that agreement into the garbage bin, and uh, which was known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or uh, G, uh, I mean JCPOA. Right, uh, which was uh, basically for, and he got rid of it in September of 2018. So since then, the Trump administration has been uh, piling sanctions over sanctions against against Iran, and so that's and then of course uh, the pinnacle of this was in January of this year the U.S. strike that killed the top Iranian general Qasem Soleimani, uh, you know, bringing the countries almost to. Uh, the two countries to the verge of war. So this is uh, the kind of the Iran scenario under Trump. The Democrats say, say okay, we're going to ba go back to where we left off during right. the Obama administration. Well, and, 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 and in fact, that would be a welcome change. In my opinion, it doesn't go far enough. But um, to go back to the status quo, which I think is the bulk of what the democratic platform is on foreign policy, is just a return to the status quo under the Obama administration. For Iran, that seems like uh, a good place because let's not forget, Jamal, the, the economy in Iran has been devastated. More recently, actually, we didn't even talk about this in the last week, there have been a number of attacks and bomb attacks at their research facilities that have been, you know, thought to come from, uh, you know, the the Israeli cyber attacks that continue to, you know, plague Iran. Iran is in a very difficult uh, position right now. Um, and so being able to go back to the, the quote status quo, although not great, will at least take some of the pressure off of Iran economically. And of course, you know, having some sort of open talks with the Iranians about their nuclear program, you know, that's a good uh, jumping off point, I think. It's not a big change from yeah. Obama. It's not huge. So, of course, the second item on the list is on Palestine. Well, here we and, go, Jamal. And uh, we, we know go. and we know that uh, uh, the uh, 
uh, Biden team met with some Palestinian activists, supposedly. And supposedly Biden himself, I don't have the names, because we know how this game is played and who is selected and who is not and whatever to represent Palestinian Americans in the United States. So there has been some meetings and there has been a lot of exchanges and some pressure uh, uh, from the Sanders camp because the Sanders camp right. now is advising Biden to kind of push uh, the Democratic Party to the left, you know, on these issues. However, <laughs> very little has changed. It, I think it's gotten worse, Jamal. And, and uh, well, uh, here is the language, and I use some of the language here because, again, the Biden, uh, the Biden team keeps repeating, yeah, we want to go back to the two-state solution between the Palestinians and the Israelis, negotiation, the same old, same old stuff since Oslo, but, exp uh, but still, and, and repeat, and repeatedly expresses support to Israel's security, not the Palestinian security, even though there's some words like, you know, uh, saying that uh, there is a language here saying Democrats recognize the worthy, I'm sorry, Democrats recognize the worth of every Israeli and every Palestinian. That's like the only thing that kind of, you know, but, they also express support for Israel security and basically the caveat, uh, they talk about rejecting the BDS. So they reject, denounce the boycott, divestment and sanctions BDS movement, which a lot of people are embracing across the globe now. And the only change in that uh, part about the BDS came with the caveat about respecting free speech. It's kind of like a disclaimer that, that could be, you know, saying we're against BDS, but we might respect people's right of, you know, right to choose. So that's the only thing. But they time and time again say they're against BDS. And again, Democrats believe a strong, secure and democratic Israel is vital to the interests of the United States. This is according to the document. Our commitment to Israel's security, its qualitative military edge, its right to defend itself, and the 2016 Memorandum of Understanding is ironclad. And you know the Memorandum of Understanding. That's, right. that's after that when uh, the Obama you know, gave Israel more money, more billions of that's right. U.S. taxpayers' money. At the, so end nothing, of, at, at the end of his administration, they did that, yes. So, so in my opinion, and I'm sure you agree with this, the Democratic Party is still in denial and the Democratic Party does not represent the sentiment of the American public on this issue. It just doesn't, Jamal. You're absolutely right. Not only does it not represent the, the will of the people of the United States, the bulk of the people of the United States, this is tired, old, you know, Oslo language that has that has failed and it has failed miserably and it has failed miserably for years and years and years. And in fact, we would say it's part of Obama's biggest foreign policy failure during eight years, did absolutely nothing to move the needle on Israeli occupation, oppression and apartheid. In fact, some people would say it even got worse. I believe it even got worse under Obama. So here's the best case scenario, Jamal. 
this doesn't represent the Democratic Party where it is. It doesn't represent Bernie Sanders. It doesn't represent the progressive elements of the Democratic Party. The best case scenario for what this is, is that it's a starting point for negotiation. If this is non-negotiable and this is the party platform going forward to the fall, it's going to alienate a lot of progressive voices within the Democratic Party and potentially we're headed for another, you know, Trump uh, four years. So I hope this is just the opening negotiating position and that there's a lot of room for movement. If not, Jamal, it's really a disaster for the Democrats. Yeah, absolutely. It will be. And it re- it's really surprising with all the voices now coming out, speaking against the uh, apartheid in Israel from within the Democratic Party, from, uh, from progressive uh, Jewish uh, American citizens here. And Israel and from itself. Zionists and from Zionists, Peter and Zionist, yeah, and so they so even even within Israel, and yet the Democratic Party is so beholden to this idea of the basically what APAC dictates as talking points, basically for them, and the, and 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 despite the pressure coming from, you know, Bernie Sanders. I mean, we. Uh, Bernie Sanders, of course, did not address all these issues to our liking, but he was moving a little bit to the left. It took right. him a while to kind of progressively kind of acknowledge all these issues, and they are refusing to do that. So um, I want to discuss other issues, so I'll go quickly through the other points. Just So, of course, then the Democrats will end support for, for the Saudi-led war in Yemen, which we know this has been oh, a devastating disaster. war, it's like a human disaster basically um, in the making and then support for keeping small a small number of troops in Iraq which hasn't changed this is what uh, Obama promised to pull out all the troops but yet we are leaving some troops even though uh, just um, the Iraqis are requesting that the Americans leave this right. was actually made in a statement early this year by the Iraqi parliament, uh, which passed a resolution after the killing of Soleimani calling for American troops to leave the country. We still insist on leaving these troops in, saying this is the language that you need to keep some troops in Iraq to pre- prevent the re-emergence of uh, the Islamic State. You know, so it's a, it's a big disappointment, actually, and I hate to say this, Jamal, the Trump position might even be better. <laughs> that could be because Trump has said he wants to remove all troops. I mean, his rationale for it and reasoning and understanding of the region is is disgustingly ignorant. But at least the policy is he wants to bring all the troops home from Iraq and Afghanistan and from the Middle East, So, except the Gulf. So ironically, Trump's position is more progressive. I think that's kind of I think that's kind I of know. funny. Yeah, and then a couple of other things. One, I'm sure, close to your heart, pledged to close down Guantanamo prison, and and who pledged to do that? It Obama. was the Obama and Biden. So now he's coming back. Oh, we have a pledge now in the draft 2020 platform. Democrats reiterate their pledge to close down the prison. Let's see if that's going to happen. It hasn't happened in eight years during the Obama administration. So I don't know if they're going to do that. The only way it'll happen, Jamal, is if the Democrats take the Senate, because uh, in the past under Obama, it was really the Senate that blocked because the Congress was willing and able to do it. Obama wanted to do it, but it was really the Senate that blocked it. And as long as Mitch McConnell 
uh, Moscow Mitch, as long as Mitch McConnell is the uh, head of the Senate, there's just no way that that's going to happen. So then the other things that are kind of related to foreign policy, they're actually domestic policy, but I'll mention them quickly because they're related to foreign policy is, and this is in the language of the draft, we will confront white nationalist terrorism and combat hate crimes perpetrated against religious minorities. That's in the document. And then the other one is, Democrats will also work to restore trust with our Muslim communities by ensuring the government's engagement is not discriminatory, nor viewed through a security lens. Okay, so if they're going to go after white supremacy, are they going to go after what the Israelis uh, are, <laughs> uh, you know, you know, basically their nationalistic uh, approach to the apartheid practice in Palestine? I mean, well, they're you know, not going to go because they don't even mention the word occupation. So it's kind of like nothing. Well, but that change. but again, that tells you the hypocritical nature. Yeah. I mean, I'm being sarcastic, obviously, because they're willing to speak out against white supremacy. They're willing to speak out against oppression, against Muslims and uh, people of color, except when it comes to the Israeli white supremacy, the Israeli occupation of folks of color, the Israeli occupation and apartheid practices in Palestine. So the hypocrisy of the democratic platform, Jamal, no surprise to you and me, hasn't changed. You're listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco, 89.5 FM. We're going to go to the other topic, uh, Jess, and and you, uh, you'll, you're going to love it. That's your area of uh, expertise. Person, woman, man, camera, TV. Here I said it. Am I a genius, Jess? <laughs> well, Jamal, let's put it this way. You just passed uh, 25% of a dementia test. And basically, just because you barely pass a dementia test does not make you brilliant. Yet President Trump, after passing what what is among the easiest series of questions that you can imagine. It's what we use in the field to see if someone is either has dementia or is approaching dementia. We create these tests, these mental status examinations that are very easy um, to, you know, to be correct on. Because if you have dementia, if you have Alzheimer's, if you have that kind of you know, severe disability of your brain and your central nervous system, you can't answer the, these really simple questions. So acing a dementia test, Jamal, in my opinion, humbly, is not in any way something to brag about. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's like you, you can say, oh, that's a giraffe and that's an elephant and understand the difference between the two. Bragging about acing that test or counting backward from 100 is you know it's 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 not just insulting it's 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 almost it's even beyond embarrassing he's bragging about passing a dementia test Jamal as somehow an act of brilliance and he's not he's not just done it once he yeah. he's been doing it for 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 weeks now i aced the test i challenge he basically says i challenge joe biden to take a dementia test and to see how joe biden would do it's really ridiculous it is. I mean, just to give it more context to our uh, viewers and listeners, uh, Jess, I mean, he's been on at least three shows doing the same thing. And it started with his team and, of course, with Trump himself 
attacking uh, former Vice President uh, Joe Biden's uh, mental and physical fitness, uh, you know, saying that Biden is basically has a problem. And, and, and uh, then Trump began pondering his own uh, cognitive abilities. And uh, the way he presents it is like, I'm a genius. Like, if I can pass this, no one can pass this. And, and this is basically, uh, I think it's just a simple test that actually they have. Uh, it's a very simple if, test. If, if, I'm, if I'm correct, uh, it's, just, uh, it's called the Montreal Cognitive Assessment. Yeah, it's a standardized uh, screening test to, to rule out people with severe cognitive impairment or dementia or brain disorder or a brain injury, Jamal. It's... 95% of people pass it without any problem. Um, to get a few questions wrong on this test probably means that you have some serious problems. It's so easy, Jamal, that you can be you can be developmentally, you know, compromised in all these ways and still pass the test very easily. So yeah, it's the bar is very, very low for this test, Jamal. So what, why, why is this fixation? How, what, how do you interpret Trump's fixation to kind of show the world that I can pass this test, I can pass this test? Well, I think one is political and one is psychological. I mean, I think politically what he's trying to do, Jamal, is set up a distinction between himself and Vice President Biden. His attacks on Joe Biden so far have all fallen short. It show you know, the polls are showing Biden with double digit leads in all polls, including Fox polls. And in some cases, he's ahead by 15 points ahead of Trump. So the Trump political angle is you have to vote for me because sleepy Joe Biden has is is, you know, he's basically going to say he's cognitively not capable of uh, being president of the United States. I aced it. So that's the political. The psychological is that, you know, this book came out by his niece, really mm. calling into question his the, the deep psychological depravity of his early childhood, his father, the abuse that his father put on his brothers. Um, and, you know, the, the basic uh, greediness and um, basically inability of Donald Trump for the entirety of his life to be honest and forthright. He's been a liar and cheat his entire life, according to his niece. So I think psychologically, acing this test is just part of his narcissistic personality that he, you know, like he went to the best schools, he went to Ivy League schools, all of these things that he likes to say he's the smartest person in the room. So part of it is his own narcissism mm -hmm. uh, saying, I aced this test. He doesn't realize, Jamal, that saying that you aced a dementia test sounds really, really, it sounds really kind of crazy, to be honest. And insecure. It's, it's about his insecurity. Yeah, you don't ace a dementia test, and, and that's not something you're proud of. So this this kind of made me laugh. Like I'm like I keep watching it, and and, and I don't know how the rest of the American public think about it. I, f I, I find it more entertaining, kind of like no, kind of it's childish, disturbing. No, it's childish and no, it's but but what I'm worried about. This is part which got very little coverage. Part of the same interview I think with Chris Wallace is uh, when he uh, 
basically doubled down uh, on talking about the groundless claim that mail-in voting would rig the election. They got into that. And then after that, Wallace asked Trump, are you suggesting that you might not accept the results of the election? That's right. And, and any sane person would say, this is a democracy, of course. I'm going to respect that. And what did Trump say? I have to see. Right. And that, to me, is that's the disturbing. scary part. Yeah, that's yeah. the disturbing part. And can I just add something to the disturbing part? This week, Jamal, the Trump administration decided to uh, request the legal services of no other than John Yu, the attorney who is responsible for le- legalizing and writing in, in legal form and getting the Bush administration to authorize torture. He So John Yu has been enlisted by the Trump administration to figure out a way, I think, to engage in more illegality, more unconstitutional behavior, more ways to elevate the presidency to the supreme presidency, almost like a monarch. And because John Yu's position is that the president can do no wrong. The president has ultimate power. The president you know, can basically, you know, the, the the infamous, I can do whatever I want to do on Fifth Avenue. John Yu supports that from a legal, you know, doctrine. So he's been brought on board to the Trump administration, I think, to help think through the very thing that you're worried about. And uh, you could, they're planning it, Jamal. They're, they're gaming it in their mind legally, how to stay in office, even if they lose the election. It's very disturbing. And, and this is very disturbing, you know, because also we're seeing what's happening in uh, Portland, you know, and other and, chi- and it's going to happen in Chicago this weekend and, and, and some other Chi- places. Yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, I mean, for the very first time, we're seeing... Uh, homeland Security. Homeland Security in full uniform. M- uh, no identification. Right. No identification. Basically, snatching people off the streets without identifying themselves—it's un—it's constitutional, Jamal, that if the police take you and arrest you, they have to identify themselves. They have to—they have to say what agency they're with. Even the FBI does that, Jamal. When the FBI tries to arrest you, they show you their their ID. They say we're with the FBI. Here's why we're here, and this is why we're arresting you. It's. It's written into the Constitution. What happened in, um, it's codified rather, what happened in Portland and what looks like it's going to happen in other cities is that these un, these uh, these militarized, names blacked out, without ID, Department of Homeland Security thugs are pepper spraying, attacking and arresting people and not telling them who they are. It's really very disturbing. It is very disturbing. So uh, let's go to the fun part just now uh, and talk about cooking, which uh, just <laughs> kind of like to divert our... I need it. <laughs> I need it, Take a break Jamal. from this heavy political stuff. I need and it. So and, we... Blanche, and Blanche is a, gr- is a great, great person to do this, Jamal. She's yeah, really so wonderful. Let's listen uh, to this interview with her, giving us tips how to cook simple, delicious meals at home during quarantine. Joining us from her kitchen in Northern California, Blanche Shaheen, cookbook author and host of Feast, 
uh, in the Middle East, a cooking show where she shares heirloom recipes that her Palestinian family has passed down to her through generations. Welcome again to Arab Talk, Blanche. Thank you, thank you. I just wish you that I was there in the studio with you so I could share these goodies with you. Well, this is not our studio. This is the yeah. makeshift studio from our shelter in place because we actually can't go there. So uh, <laughs> so, so for those who don't know, Blanche has been on our show several times sharing healthy recipes with our audience. Let me tell you something, Blanche, how happy it makes me uh, to host you again on the show. Not that because you are an old colleague and, and, and a friend, but you speak my language, food and <laughs> politics. Yes. So, so, this is a, so this is a deadly Palestinian concoction we inherited from our elders, right? We're just sitting around the table and talking about politics and talking about food. But we want to focus more on the fun stuff, the food today, because as you know, Everyone is facing the, during these difficult times, the sheltering in place with the COVID-19 and more and more, more and more people like myself and others who relied on going out, eating out in restaurants, whatever, they're finding themselves having to eat at home and prepare meals. So some, of course, have the skills, others like myself don't. So for, for the novices who love basically Middle Eastern cuisine, and, and then we want to talk to you about some of your recommendations and, and recipes, which, by the way, I should mention, if you don't mind showing us the book again, because you have it all in your book, which is, you know, your personal journey, you know. Absolutely. Uh, the personal journey. It took, it took me 10 years to write this book. And uh, because, you know, as, a, as you know, in our culture, a lot of us didn't know how to cook because our, our mothers and grandmothers kind of cooked from the hip. They didn't use measurements, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. So it was painstaking to try to get down all the measurements of all the classics and include some fun fusion recipes as well that reflect my American background too, as an Arab American. Yeah, but I mean, you brought up a good point about quarantine uh, because, it, it is quite sad. A lot of people found themselves with restaurants closed and food shortages and unable to cook and wondering, how am I going to survive? What am I going to live off of? You mm -hmm. know, and grabbing everything from the frozen section, heating it up and hoping that they'll survive through this mess. And so what I did at the time was I did this, uh, I called it quarantine cheap eats, like how to eat on a budget using uh, grains that are very popular in the Arab world. So grains like bulgur wheat and frika uh, and maftul. Maftul is like a couscous. So what people could do is get these grains as the foundation and then take it from there. Add on some vegetables, add your protein, uh, add some chickpeas, add some raisins or pistachios, put dressing on it. And so that's, that's what I really want to do is acquaint them with pantry staples that don't go bad in an emergency that they could whip up and put together and feed a family for under $10, basically. And then, of course, the grains kind of last for a long time, so you don't have to worry about them. Yes, yes. and know. lentils, too. Lentils and chickpeas. Like, for example, these falafel, right? Take a look at the, these falafel right here. Look at the inside. These are made of chickpeas with just a few herbs, and they have a meaty taste and texture, and they're quite filling. But a bag of dried chickpeas is like $2, right? And they keep in your pantry for, for a year or more, many years. And you can turn something. This is what Adam do, man. We, we take chickpeas and we turn it into this. Okay? Well, let me tell you something. I don't know if you read my short bio, 
But aside from claiming that I'm a journalist, I say that I am also a falafel aficionado. Yeah, that's I on my, that, yeah. That's on my bio. I mean, it that's might be a stereotype, but I love falafel. Everywhere I go, when I was in Palestine, I tried to, tried to kind of try different towns because they have kind of different recipes yeah. and different flavors. Also, when I traveled into Syria, Lebanon, and of course, including Egypt, where they call it tamiya, they make it with the fava beans instead of garbanzo beans. Right. I try it, and I'm always like looking you for must, the best. You food. must tell me then who makes the best falafel. I'm dying to know. Well, I am uh, biased. So my bias takes me to my hometown, Jerusalem. And I've tried it in a lot of places. There is a small shop not too far from where my mom lives, not too far from where I, I grew up. It's called Iker Mawi. And oh. it's, a, it's a hole in the wall. Basically, they, you, you can't eat there. You just like stand there and then you watch the guy frying it and then you ask for your falafel sandwich and then you have to get the hell out of there to, to make room for others to come in. Right. So, uh, of course, he doesn't have any ready-made. He makes it to order. You just walk in and you see him. They fry it. They have the pita bread, the, the Arabic salad, the tahini sauce. If you want hot sauce, whatever. Comes out fresh out of the frying pan. And, and I like the spices because I, uh, I like, like, for example, extra cumin. Mm. To have the flavor of cumin in it. To more, digest this falafel too, you know. More, <laughs> more on the parsley side. So what yeah. is, how do you make falafel? Okay, so this is, you know. Yeah, so you, so you have to soak the falafel first. And when you soak them, a trick that you use right before frying is you add baking soda to it. So that uh, it, it just, you know, holds together and prevents it from being mushy. Uh, you can add cilantro or you could add parsley and, of course, copious amounts of cumin. Um, and, you know, I, I just grind it in the food processor, really, and I could even freeze it. So I made batches of these and I froze it. So whenever the family wanted some, you just take some out and fry it. Uh, so that's why it, uh, Arabs really know, like, I, I realized after this whole quarantine that my parents were always prepared for lockdown, but never even knew it in mm -hmm. the sort of cuisine that they taught me how to make. Do you know what I mean? Like, they had this stuff frozen. They're known, Arabs are known for having two, three refrigerators packed to the hilt with food so that they'll have you it. Because never, you never know when your cousin's going to show up and announce, right? Right. They yeah. just ring your doorbell and then you have a party of 12. <laughs> I know. And then somehow these women whip up a meal for 12 people in like under two hours, you know? It's incredible. And also things like, okay... One thing that I thought about was ground meats, right? Ground meats are always cheaper than regular steaks, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's ground turkey, whether it's ground beef. Uh, and then there was a ton of Beyond Meat. I can't stand the stuff, but a lot of people like it. And what you could do is you could turn it into, okay, these are called arayas. And these are crispy sandwiches where we take, arayas means bride and groom. I mm -hmm. guess like the bride is the white bread and the groom is the, the dark groom tuxedo, the meat in the middle. <laughs> They're in, a, in an embrace, in a sandwich embrace, okay? Have you heard of this before? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so the, the arayas, uh, I mean, I, I, uh, I can think, I also think about it as a thin hamburger yes. in pita, you know, yes. like really with, but more flavorful, flavorful and, and has more spices, 
Right. And so you said the key word. So the, the, the meat is very, very thin, you know, so a little bit goes a long way. You stretch it out with lots of pita bread. So it's filling for less money. And we brush it with olive oil and boil it in the oven. So it's nice and crispy when you eat it like a cracker. And then it has the meat. You could dip it in hummus. And, it, and you know, like you could get a packet of ground, whatever kind of meat you want, and feed in an entire family with it. And everybody would get full simply because, you know, you've got it, you've got it in, the, in these pita, pita sandwiches. And that's another resourceful way to make, like, a meat extend to feed a family, you know? So, so basically, if you prepare the meat... Uh, and mm-hmm. then you put it in the in, in the in the bread. You could freeze it, right? Absolutely. And just, just take it, take it, take it out, and stick it in the oven. Yes, my parents used to bring these sandwiches for us at camping trips when we were kids. I kid you not. They'd pack them up and then they would throw them on the grill. And we kids, we went to town. We loved this stuff. We could eat like you know twenty a piece if you let us. And, you know? and so, so how long does uh, will it take you to prepare something like this? Oh my gosh, it's so quick. So you take the ground meat of choice. Uh, and mix in some uh, like grated onion, some chopped parsley, a little bit of chopped garlic, um, some spices like allspice, uh, salt, pepper, maybe a little bit of lemon pepper, and that's it. So once you grind it out, you can flatten it and put it in each pita, then brush it with olive oil and bake it. Something like this literally takes uh, like 15 minutes. And wow. if you get your kids to help you, which they will because they want to eat it, It'll take under than under fifteen minutes. And this know? is something like it's easy to sell to sell to kids because they're so finicky. You don't have like you know just give them like some hamburger meat, you know, and they're happy. It's like giving them hot dogs, really, but Pretty it's healthier. It's like the hot dog of the Middle East, I guess you could say. Yeah. Yeah, and it's of course it's better quality meat and and healthier. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I try to pick whatever I can. I mean, it was hard during quarantine to pick the, the best cuts of ground beef or whatever. So it's funny, Americans don't like lamb, right? And it was a bit more expensive, but a family's got to eat. I'm like, you know what, I'm going to get the lamb for the family. And they don't mind, they like lamb. But Americans, they, they're shy about eating brown lamb. I actually enjoy it more than brown well, meat. Well, here's a trick that I learned from my friends. Mm-hmm. Actually, if you mix lamb and, and, and beef, okay, and so for, Amer- for an American taste, it takes away that gaminess a great of, idea. of the lamb, and they love it because it just makes it richer and more flavorful, mm-hmm. and a lot of times they don't even know, they don't even know that it has lamb in it, you know, so that's, that's one way to kind of introduce I'm people to I'm going to, to try lamb. that next time. I'm going to try that on a person that I know that really hates lamb and see if I could sneak it past him. Now, you said something before, uh, you mentioned uh, the fake meat, the uh, beyond beef, meat, yeah. meat, beyond meat, whatever. And yeah. I'm like you. I actually say, we have vegetarian stuff because falafel is our, right? Garbanzo right. beans is full of protein. Exactly. And we have a lot of vegetarian dishes like baba ganoush, hummus, etc. And But some people like it. Some people like it. Actually, uh, my wife likes it. She she tried it because uh, she's a vegetarian, oh. and, and I'm not. And she's she's tried it and tried another. And so uh, the question is, you can make this with uh, with Beyond Meat, right? Oh yeah, absolutely, you can. 
any kind of meat, any any kind of vegan meat, uh, vegetarian meat, whatever, you can totally make it with that. So yeah. do you have to put like extra spices to kind of compensate? I probably would. Like I'd amp up probably the allspice. Allspice is the quintessential spice of Palestinian cooking, at least. It gives everything that Middle Eastern flavor that most people seek that they get from restaurants. And it's like a, a one size fits all spice. I put it in almost everything. So if they add allspice to pretty much anything with salt and pepper, I think they could make it taste a thousand times better for sure. But you know, there are also, I mean, for this here's, uh, if your wife is vegetarian, uh, here's another uh, specialty called Ijja. Have you heard of Ijja? Can you tilt that, tilt, tilt the dish a little bit? Here we go. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Ijja. Ijja yeah. is basically a zucchini pancake, right? So zucchinis are in oh. season right now. And uh, there's copious amounts of zucchini in the farmer's markets. And uh, there, it's, there's so many different varieties. And one way my kids love to eat zucchini is in a pancake. So when you mix it up with a little bit of flour, uh, eggs, and some herbs, this is where you can have fun with it. Like I put chopped parsley and mint. But wow. you can add basil. You can add uh, uh, tarragon, anything you want and a little bit of Parmesan cheese to give it some zest and eggs. And then you flip it over. And then what my kids like to do, so you'll take something like this and you can customize it, right? So I mm. like mine with hummus, which is kind of weird, hummus. But if you want to make it Italian, you could put marinara and put mozzarella and broil it in the oven. If you want it Mexican style, you could put a little bit of sour cream and salsa. Uh, you could add some avocado and smoked salmon. I mean, it's really a great foundation that you can take in all sorts of fusion directions. You know what I mean? To, to cater to everybody's taste. Because in my family, so many people like different things. I'm not going to make a dish for each person. I'll make this one dish, and, and they can go to town with their preferences, adding what they want on the top. So what's great about Arab cooking is it's also versatile and healthy. I mean, look, it's got your eggs. It's got, uh, you know, the vegetables built in. You don't even need a veggie side dish. And it's filling too. So, and, and, and you know, it's great. In the summer months, you don't want really to turn on the oven. You want to just take the skillet, flip mm -hmm. these babies up and eat them and, you're, and, and everybody enjoys them. So that's and, why. I like and and you, could, you can eat this hot and cold, right? Yes, you can. I love them cold. I really do. Sometimes I don't want to heat it up and I'll eat it cold. No problem. I mean, I, I wish I could show you texturally here. There's the texture. Yeah. I put some Parmesan in there. You could see some of the herbs peeking through the zucchini. I wish you were here. I feel bad. I'm like, look at all this food. You can't <laughs> You're torturing me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at it. Not <laughs> and, fair. Uh, uh, this reminds me, just to let you know, uh, something I've had in Greece. They make something close to this, except it's chunkier. Oh. And it's smaller. And also, like, so if you go to a seafood restaurant, mm -hmm. it's a side dish. They serve it. Like a and fritter, I, maybe it's deep fried. Yeah, like a, like a fritter, exactly. Yeah. And I forgot uh, what they called it, uh, but, I, but it's really delicious, you know, with seafood and, mm -hmm. and they squeeze a little bit of lemon on oh, it. That's, I should try that. That sounds great. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. But I don't know if they put the eggs there, so I have to kind of like, you know, but it, actually it's very nice. Um, I love it like a pancake to save on the oil, but traditionally, like Palestinians, they would deep fry this, Absolutely. And then I remember, you know, my grandparents, they'd make it and they'd have the towel to, to drain all the oil that comes out of it, you know, and then you, it, it's just very heavy, you know, you're, you're sort of, it, it just sits on your gut, like up here when it's deep fried. I find it's a lot lighter this way and mm. easier to, 
that less less prep in the kitchen and less mess without the oil splattering everywhere. So 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 all these recipes are in your book, right? Yes, they're in my cookbook. So yeah, if you, if you go to feastinthemiddleeast.com, uh, it's available there. You can order it. Um, I always discourage people from going to Amazon because Jeff Bezos is so evil. He literally takes like 90% of every sale. He's a despicable human being. Oh, boy. boy, boy. Uh, well, I'm not going to say anything, uh, you know, so we don't get sued on our show. No, I'm just kidding. I know. But, I know. but he just made, uh, I think, $13 billion during the Corona or something like that. Just like his net worth, just like mushroomed another by okay. another $13 billion because everyone now, uh, I mean, I see the Amazon and I'm sure the drivers that are in and out always delivering things, right? Everybody's working and he's making all of the money. Everybody's doing the creativity, the shuttling, the heavy lifting, and he's just cashing the checks. So so, I'm sorry I interrupted you. So if I don't want to go through Jeff Bezos, how do I get it? Yes, yes. You just go to (laughs) feastinthemiddleeast.com. Feastinthemiddleeast.com. There's an order now icon. And then that way it'll just be distributed directly from the warehouse in Florida to your doorstep. That's a, the best way to, to get it, yeah. Just go to my website. So, and also, like, people can go to your YouTube channel, right? So you you, you have all the shows uh, that yes. you, you still you, – are you still producing these or you just uh, have ones before COVID? You're still doing it? No, no, I'm still doing them because I felt like people needed more support, cooking support than ever. So even when everything was shut down, I was like – you know, taping my own stuff, you know, do I, I do all my own, my own stuff anyway. Uh, but uh, what's great is in tandem with the book, a lot of the recipes, uh, almost all of them are on my channel because some people want extra technical assistance. They can just get it right off of my channel and it, and it helps them tremendously. So, so quickly, just about the book and we talked about it before, but for our uh, new listeners and viewers uh, to the show, uh, this was a big journey for you. That was, was like, so what inspired you to really uh, go ahead with it? Because it's also a costly, uh, you know, thing yes. to go through. It was, it was. Um, really, uh, in the beginning, it's actually what I set out to do in the beginning for my own family, for my own kids. Um, I wanted to record all of the recipes because it's part of my cultural identity as a Palestinian. I felt it was important to preserve these recipes and pass them on to my children. And then when I made the YouTube videos, uh, there was like this whole community of people that seemed to appreciate the cuisine and want to get involved and want to make the food. And, and it extended to, you know, Americans who love going to Middle Eastern restaurants or people that had married somebody Middle Eastern and wanted to impress the family they married into or a college kid that like is, is you know far away from their family and miss misses mama's cooking and wants to create it uh, in his apartment far away. Uh, so I realized that I was sort of a uh, support for all of these people all over. I mean, when you look at like the Palestinian diaspora or Lebanese or Syrians, there's so many of us that have been displaced. And the one thing that unifies all of us is food. And so I felt like I could be this bridge of culture for everybody to come together. And they send me their dishes and I like resharing them on social media because Mm -hmm. I'm proud of them and what they've accomplished. And so this book, it took me 10 years you know, to write. It took me crazy amounts of capital to publish it on my own, but nothing was going to stop me. I'm like, I'm going to have a book, a legacy that I can keep, not just for my immediate family, but now for my global cooking family, which has been created ever since I created 
uh, my show on the YouTube platform. Uh, so that has been really special. A lot of them demanded it. Like I tried to postpone it. The more I postpone it, they're like, come on, when's your cookbook coming out? So they helped me accountable in a way, you know? Yeah, I've saw, I also saw, saw uh, some of your show shows and you incorporate the entire family, like you have your mom. Yeah, and, <laughs> exactly. And so, so how much uh, inspiration did you get from her? I mean, I Incredible know. amounts of inspiration. I mean, my mom was always somebody who experimented in the kitchen. So she would make for us, you know, Chinese food or Russian food, Italian food. But her uh, Palestinian food was top notch. And I always thought that my mom's, you know, every kid thinks their mom's is the best. But uh, people always wanted to come over my mom's house because she had the most amazing food. And, and so uh, I definitely wanted to sort of pay homage to her and her hard work and sacrifice our whole lives. I mean, she sacrificed her career to just be, be there for us as kids. Uh, to to cook for us, to take care of us. And so I felt like this was, in a way, a thank you, a big thank you to her. Uh, so that she was definitely instrumental uh, in, in creating this book. Well, we like to thank you and thank her. And I'm sure she's very proud of you. And I, can, I, can, I have this vision about her visiting her friends and carrying your book. And yeah. kind of like, here is my daughter's book. You know, she's so proud of it. So, yeah. uh, Blanche, I want to thank you for coming on Arab Talk and uh, stay safe. And uh, this you is too. what we keep, you know, and hopefully uh, we can talk uh, again uh, very soon. I so, hope so. Um, anytime so. when we, we can maybe have you in the studio when this whole crisis uh, ends, hopefully soon. Inshallah, as we say. I sure hope so. And I'll bring goodies like always. Okay? <laughs> Deal. Thank you for your time. Always great to see you. Well, I don't know about you, Jamal, but I'm really hungry now. So, <laughs> um, Blanche is amazing. She's she's a great cook. She uh, obviously is extremely talented about you know Middle Eastern and and uh, food, and she makes it very simple. I mean, it's, I'm hungry. I don't know about you. So uh, you know, and I know what you're going to tell me because every every show now we update our viewers. Uh, and listeners on KPOO in San Francisco, 89.5 FM, and, uh, you know, about what's happening with the, the, the latest updates with COVID. And it seems this is going to drag on for a while. So learning how to cook and how to take care of yourself while sheltering in place. I mean, this is, this is becoming the norm. It is. That's true, Jamal. I mean, and, 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 and people got to get used to do that. You're absolutely right. And uh, maybe, you know, it's one of those things is that we have to take this awful reality and see if there's a way that we can still do what we call health enhancing behaviors. And, you know, that's exercising, sleeping well and eating well, even in the context of the pandemic. What Blanche has done is given all of us no excuses for how to be simple and to eat well and to cook for ourselves. So now on the sad and bad news. It's not good, man. It's, it doesn't seem to be getting better. However, for the very first time, we saw Trump now holding a mask and say, I'll wear the mask, you know. Well, my, my question to uh, the Trump administration and to the president, Jamal, if wearing a mask is patriotic, how come you're not wearing it? Does that mean you're not patriotic? I mean, it's a double message. Wearing a mask is patriotic, yet he's not wearing a mask. You know, holding a mask is not wearing a mask. 
and uh, just by wearing a master mall for the next six months could save 50, 60, 70, even 80,000 people from dying. I mean, you know, for Trump to admit that this is, and he said, I'm quoting, it's going to get worse before it gets better. For him to admit his failure, for him to admit how wrong he was, um, if he's saying it's going to get worse before it's get better, we're all in deep trouble because he is still under-emphasizing how terrible it is. He keeps saying the reason there's so many people is because we're testing more. That's not the reason, Jamal. The reason that we're doing so terrible is that the infection rate in Arizona, for example, is above 20%. In Texas, it's above 20%. For every you know 100 people tested, 20 are coming up positive. If it's above 2%, it's terrible. And we have states, Jamal, where it's 15, 18, 20, 23%. It's some of the worst infection rates in the world that we had over 1,000 deaths in one day in the United States yesterday. And, you know, for him to say, well, I'm interested in vaccines, we're doing great work on vaccines, that's simply not true. Uh, we're going to do therapeutics, you know, treat the symptoms. We don't have anything that's really evidence-based yes, yet, except for remdesivir. So, um, you know, it's, I keep saying this every week, Jamal, and I'm sorry to our listeners and our viewers, but it really is getting much worse in California and in many other states in the United States. So there is no good news on vaccines. I mean, I'm starting to get confused every single week or every other day. They tell you this company is... Uh, uh, moving to stage two or three, whatever. And one time we hear AstraZeneca, the other day, they just five days ago, Pfizer, they gave, uh, uh, what is it, uh, $2 billion or a billion and a half dollars to Pfizer. Two billion. Two billion to Pfizer. And before that, it was uh, Gilead. And before that, it was another company. So where where are we with this? Well, if you want to know the sad truth, um the results that they're talking about, about the vaccines, the the companies haven't been really honest with the people of the United States and the world. Um, the Cambridge results, which everybody's been talking about, you know, and AstraZeneca is working with uh, the Cambridge uh, folks, what they didn't tell you that the side effect profile is pretty bad. And so you're going to take this, you're going to get side effects, and they're minimizing the side effects. That's number one. Number two, the, we don't know about the long-term antibodies or immune response, if it's going to last long enough. Now they're talking about you're going to need two shots and a booster shot. So if we have to get billions of vaccinations, Jamal, and even if the vaccine is 50% effective, that means 50% it's not going to be effective. And then you're going to need multiple shots. I know people want to be hopeful. I know people are really frustrated, but the reality is that the vaccine most likely is not going to be the the magic bullet. I hate to use that uh, analogy. It's not going to be the magic cure that we're all hoping for. It might be 50% successful. It means that there's probably going to be five or six different vaccines. It means we're probably going to have to take two vac two shots, maybe three with a booster shot later on. And there's simply not enough vaccine to go around to get everybody vaccinated. 
Anthony Fauci said that he doesn't think the COVID vaccine, the COVID virus is ever going to go away. Wow. So I, I'm sorry to be the, the bearer of bad news, but I will say again, wear your mask, socially distance. Don't be stupid. I mean, let's get on board. We have to be able to do the smart things and not say wearing a mask has any political consequences. It's, it's really do the right thing for other people, not for yourself. Well, we're going to keep updating our every week our uh, listeners about the progress with this. And yes. it, it, it basically, this is a new way of life. Uh, it's not going to be resolved in a month or two. It might take a year, might take two years. Because, That's you know, right. as when we started, people were thinking in terms of days and weeks, and now it's months, but it's not going to be, uh, there's no cure like in the near future. No, it, there isn't. Just, we have to be smart. We have to wear masks and socially distance for the for the foreseeable future. You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM. And I want to also thank our viewers on Facebook and on YouTube. Uh, go to our website, ArabTalkRadio.com, for our latest shows and for our podcast. And we will talk to you next week. We'll see you next week.